I have one friend that, that makes a lot more money than I do, and we'll go out to a restaurant, and we'll, we'll enjoy the time, and I've been astonished by how he orders food. We'll sit at the table, and he'll be like, uh, yeah, he just kind of is a take charge kind of person. We'll have, uh, he doesn't even ask me, we'll have two of those, and then uh, two of these, and then he's like looking at the menu, and he'll be like, not even sure what he's pointing out, one of those, and what's your favorite? He'll ask the, the waitress, well, what do you like most here? She'll be like, well, I like the, he doesn't even let her finish, and he'll be like, yeah, we'll have one of those too. And I'm looking at him like, there's, there's, there's two of us, and you just ordered enough for the whole restaurant. Like, what do you, and then he never eats hardly anything. And I'm like, well, I'll just eat it all, because I don't want to, like, we're paying for it. So I'm like, this guy's crazy. And then, like, three weeks later, I'll, I'll take my wife out on a date, and we'll be sitting, even at a different restaurant, and I'll be like... Uh, yeah, how you doing? Great. We'll have uh, two of these and uh, two of those. And, and what's your favorite thing on the map? Great. Give us a couple of those as well. And Chelsea's looking at me like, have you lost your mind? And then like the, the waitress is walking away and I'm like, oh shoot, what did I do? I have to pay for that. How did this happen? If you're uh, here for the, the first time with us uh, this morning, my name is Landon, and I'm thankful to be uh, one of the team members. Before we do dive into this passage, uh, one other quick announcement we forgot in staff meeting, and I forgot to announce it last week, or last service, so we're counting on you. We do not have enough chairs for everybody. Uh, for Easter, which is a good problem. I love good problems. So if you would be so kind, if, if you're going to come, then we'll, we'll have some. So if it's an issue, don't worry about it. But if you could bring a lawn chair, just how we did uh, throughout summer, last summer, uh, it's an incredible just joy and opportunity to worship outside in our parking lot. We'll roll out the turf and planters and trees, and it'll be wonderful. Uh, but if you could help us out by bringing a lawn chair, if you have an extra one, that would be great. So we have chairs for people to sit on because that helps. All right, we're going to dive into this passage. It's a a long passage, as you can see. I started studying. I think I was just going to do like 10 verses, and then I'm like, oh, we have to add this part and this part. So my approach is going to be a little bit different this morning. I want to highlight three uh, patterns, if you will, that I see both the author, Mark, in this gospel and Jesus himself uh, making clear that they're very important things they were concerned with. So three things is kind of how we're going to organize and uh, walk through this passage this morning. Uh, As we dive into that, uh, I'm not sure if you're aware, but it's kind of critical for us to understand in the Old Testament, if a prophet uh, prophesied something and said, God told me, or God said this, don't do that, or don't do this, or go to this place, or go to that place, and the prophet was wrong, that prophet was killed which seems kind of harsh. It seems kind of intense, and sometimes we have this idea that the the God of the Old Testament is a different God than Jesus, and they're not. They're the same God. Uh, But sometimes he comes across as a little bit angry, and this law might be one of those instances. We read it in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 20, and this is the law that God himself gave. Man didn't create it, and we read this. But the prophet who dares to speak a message in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet must die. Again, that is intense. But but here's the thing. We say all the time, everything we're about is trusting Jesus always, no matter the moment. 
And so God takes this idea of a false prophet incredibly seriously because the name of Jesus, the name of Yahweh God is the one name, is the one person who actually can be trusted always, no matter the moment. And so what God is communicating here is that there is nothing that angers him to the extent as when somebody is going to manipulate or use his name to gain something for themselves, when they're going to use his name and his reputation and the the perfect trust in the name of Jesus or in the name of Yahweh and then lead people astray. God gets really angry. It's so serious that he says a person that does that must be put to death because there's nothing as dangerous as saying God said when God didn't say. And that's something we experience frequently and need to be aware of. If if it still seems harsh, you can think about it like this. Whether or not you have kids, pretend for a a moment with me that that you have two kids. One's five and and one's seven. And you go to a a local restaurant and you're eating dinner with the family and the kids uh, finish eating early and they want to go play in the, the courtyard just outside of the restaurant. And that's fine. They've done this many times before and then you can actually eat your meal in peace. I speak from experience. Go play. And you're good with it because you can see about 90% of the courtyard, except for just this one little area behind a tree. But you're not worried about that because the kids have played there many times. You're used to this experience. And they're running back and forth, laughing and giggling and having fun and and playing hide-and-go-seek. And so you're watching them. And all is good. You're not worried about it. You're in your hometown. This is normal. They're just playing. Until without you knowing it, in that little 10% area, that shadow, someone that's never been there before, this man comes up behind the tree, and then he says something awful. He looks at your five-year-old and your seven-year-old and says, hey, I just talked to your dad. And your dad said, come with me to my car because there's something I want to give you and he wants you to have. And I, I tell this fictitious story But all of a sudden, my anger actually starts growing. And I start to to feel my blood swell and boil because I go, nobody is going to mess with my children in that way. You will never say that daddy said this when daddy did not or we're going to have some very serious consequences. And that's the role that the father takes on. When God looks at you, his beloved children, and someone comes in and says, the father, God says... And he didn't say, God gets righteously angry. He's furious. There's almost nothing recorded in the scriptures that makes God as mad as this because it is so damaging to his people when somebody uses those words God said when God didn't indeed say. Now we need to understand there are many things that the scriptures just make very clear. There's many things that God simply just said. There's not debate around them. They're just facts. And, and we're called to share those things in times. And, and sometimes God speaks to individuals in unique ways. But I think there is a moment of caution. This isn't what this passage is fully about. But there's a moment of caution for us here. There's times we're called to say, God said this. Or I heard God say. But when we do that, we better be very cautious. Because there's serious consequences in communicating on God's behalf. That's the context that we have this morning. That's why God takes false prophecy so seriously. Let's, let's look at uh, Mark 8, verses uh, 14, or 11 through 18 again. 
the Pharisees came out and began to argue with Jesus, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. But sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation demand a sign? I assure you, no sign will be given to this generation. Then he left them, got on board the boat again, and went to the other side. They had forgotten, the disciples that is, to take bread, and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Then he commanded them. That's a strong word. He didn't just tell them. He didn't suggest. Jesus commanded them. And there's a lot of exclamation points. Watch out. Be on guard in a military sense. Don't go anywhere near. Be careful. Watch out. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. It's just like a a page before this that Jesus is having a conversation both with and about the Pharisees in front of a large crowd of people. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. And Jesus, in that moment, looks at them and calls them whitewashed tombs. And a, a few weeks ago, we talked about how, to us, that doesn't mean anything. But in that culture, everybody knew what a whitewashed tomb was. And it wasn't a pretty, clean tomb. The white was intentional so that from a faraway distance, you would see it. And you would know, don't go anywhere near that tomb because there will be consequences if you get close. A modern-day parallel would be like contract tracing with COVID. It would be like coming near to somebody, and now you need to quarantine for 14 days, and you can't go to the store or marketplace or anything of that sort. But, but much more serious than even that. It's a whitewashed tomb. Stay far, far away. And it, it begs the question, why did Jesus share this? Why did he call them whitewashed tombs and at other moments deceivers, snakes, Blind guides. Jesus is not holding back in this moment. And the question is why? To to some degree, I think he cared about the Pharisees. When it says he sighed deeply in his spirit, it wasn't a sigh of anger. It was a sigh of sorrow. He was sad that they weren't getting it. I think that's a part of it. But I think the, the real significant reason is Jesus was concerned for his followers. This is truly dangerous These are the actual people I don't want you to spend time with because whether you recognize it or not, the implications of learning from them are going to be really significant and really damaging. Again, Jesus does not hold back. He doesn't pull the punch. He is blunt and candid and harsh because it's that significant. He takes false prophets, people speaking with his name incorrectly, Incredibly serious. Here's what's interesting about this. There's some people that Jesus tells us to stay far from. And there's others he says, no, you need to be there. And I think oftentimes we mix it up. Jesus doesn't seem to be too concerned with us catching something negative or unhealthy by spending time with those who drink too much and are sexually immoral and all these other things. And in fact, Jesus was accused of all of those things because he spent significant time with them. So what that actually tells us is that Jesus wasn't too concerned. This is going to sound a little bit crazy, but with behavior modification, that wasn't what he was worried about. Yet in the the midst of this culture, Jesus was willing to risk his life to warn his disciples, stay far away from them. The ones that appear to have it together. The ones that are concerned with the rules. The ones that tell you, you have to do this and that to experience the love of God. Because that is where the real danger lies. I I read a... uh, 
A quote this morning said this, Satan's true masterpiece is the Pharisee, not the prostitute. So often, though, we reverse that. We're way more concerned with people's outside appearance, behavior, actions. But what God is truly concerned with is the heart. This is how David can be described by God as a man after God's own heart, even though he did some awful things. It's because a man after God's own heart is a heart of repentance and honesty, a contrite heart. God is far less concerned with our behavior than he is with our heart. But I think we are often far more concerned with our behavior than we are with our hearts. That's hard. If you, if you grew up in church, you probably were told the opposite. And I think we've bought into this cultural Christianity, moralism idea that you need to be a good person. And there's a right way to be human. God designed us with a specific intent in mind. But the way we get there is not by doing better, but by trusting Jesus more, because we can't get there. And we'll continue to talk about that. When God created us, As human beings, he created us as beings that are spiritual, emotional, relational, and physical. And he declared that all four of those things are good. Oftentimes, we separate them. And what we don't recognize is that the spiritual, if you're not spiritually healthy, it is going to impact you physically. In a similar way, if you're not physically healthy, it actually will impact you spiritually. Because you're one person. They're not separate parts. And we often forget that. You can't separate them. However, and I want to be really careful because I think we have a a cultural tendency to overemphasize the spiritual and de-emphasize the other parts of who God made us and how he said we were made well. But the spiritual is the primary driving factor. Your spirituality is going to have a greater impact on your physical health, emotional health, and relational health than vice versa. They'll still all impact each other, but the spirit is the driving force. And so I ask this question. Are you aware of how people around you influence you spiritually? Do you recognize that? Do you ever take it into account? Do you know who influences you in what ways? Here's the, the, the first takeaway of, of three this morning. Who you spend time with matters more than you know. And, and I think that sounds maybe overly simplistic, like, yeah, obviously. But, but I want to really dive into that this morning, because I think Jesus is deeply concerned with it, as was Mark. Who you spend time with matters, and it matters more than you know. It's, it's funny, it's a, a common knowledge, if you will, that for, for children... Oftentimes, more is caught than taught. If you're a parent, you know this because you'll hear your child say something that you're a little mortified that it came out of their mouth, and you're like, where did they learn this? And then you're like, oh, yeah, I said that two days ago. More is caught than taught often. What's funny, though, is I think in our arrogance as adults, we think there was like this magical age where we moved on from that. And now it's no longer true for us that more is caught than taught, but now it's a little bit different because we have the maturity and and wisdom and self-awareness and cultural awareness to always filter out perfectly what is coming in. And so nothing is coming in is our idea, our assumption that we're not aware of and calculating. And so we actually function as if we're not catching a lot of things. We're just choosing. I think that's pretty foolish. I just don't buy it. 
I don't think it's a reality. When I uh, first got married, I had an older and wise friend as we were just figuring out our finances and, and life. And he's like, listen, you don't spend what you make. People don't spend what you make. You spend kind of the mean or the, the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. You spend what they spend. You're not going to spend what you make. You're going to end up spending just how your friends, the people that influence you in life spend. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And and then years later, I recognized, I came to know, that is just pure 100% fact. I I have one friend that that makes a lot more money than I do, and we'll go out to a restaurant, and we'll, we'll enjoy the time. And I've been astonished by how he orders food. We'll sit at the table. And he'll be like, uh, yeah, he just kind of is a take charge kind of person. We'll have, uh, he doesn't even ask me, we'll have two of those and then uh, two of these. And then he's like looking at the menu and he'll be like, not even sure what he's pointing out. One of those. And what's your favorite? He'll ask the, the waitress, well, what do you like most here? She'll be like, well, I like the, he doesn't even let her finish. And he'll be like, yeah, we'll have one of those too. And I'm looking at him like, there's, there's, there's two of us and you just ordered enough for the whole restaurant. Like, what do you, and then he never eats hardly anything. And I'm like, well, I'll just eat it all because I don't want to. Like, we're paying for it, so I'm like, this guy's crazy. And then, like, three weeks later, I'll, I'll take my wife out on a date, and we'll be sitting, even at a different restaurant, and I'll be like, uh, yeah, how you doing? Great. We'll have uh, two of these, and uh, two of those, and, and what's your favorite thing on the me- Great, give us a couple of those as well. And Chelsea's looking at me like, have you lost your mind? And then, like, the, the waitress is walking away, and I'm like, oh, shoot, what did I do? I have to pay for that. How did this happen? I, I think we're a little bit crazy if we think that we're beyond the more is caught than taught thing. And I think Jesus agrees. I mean, verse 15, then he commanded them, watch out, be alert, be on guard, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. And here's the thing with yeast, just a tiny little bit, just a pinch can make something grow significantly. And in this case, just a tiny little pinch, just a little bit of proximity to unhealthy leadership, to somebody saying God said when God didn't actually say that, to the pursuit of behavior modification instead of just trusting Jesus to change our hearts is devastating. Jesus is deeply concerned with who you spend time with, likely not in the way you process it, though, likely not in the way we're used to processing it. He's not worried about your behavior nearly as much as he's worried about your heart. Look at uh, chapter 7, verse 31. Again, leaving the region of Tyre, he went by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee through the region of the Decapolis. Here's a, a pretty cool sentence. They brought to him a deaf man who also had a speech difficulty and begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. The deaf man didn't go by himself. His friends brought him to Jesus. And then we go to chapter 8, verse 22. Then they came to Bethsaida. They brought a, oh, interesting. They brought a blind man to him and begged Jesus to touch him. There's a contrast here. There's the yeast of the Pharisees, which is devastating. Or do you have friends that will bring you before the feet of Jesus? Do you have friends that will beg to Jesus on your behalf 
For all we know, the, the blind and the deaf man had no faith. For all we know, they didn't even know who Jesus was, but their friends did, and they were operating on borrowed faith, and they were brought before the feet of Jesus. I'll, I'll tell you something. I have very little confidence in myself in life to be a good husband and father and who I need to be in all areas. But I have all the confidence in the world and the community around me because they will bring me before the feet of Jesus. Do you have those people in your life? Because Jesus says that matters, and it matters big. Our, our first takeaway, who you spend time with matters more than you know. Second takeaway, our posture before Jesus matters. Our posture before Jesus matters. I want to be careful here because this is not the main point. This wasn't like Mark sat down and said, I want them to know this. However, and I think anytime you hear from somebody teaching the scriptures, we need to be purposeful with teaching what the scriptures are saying. So that is not Mark's point. I want to clarify that. However, there is a pattern. There's three times that posture is referred to or described in this kind of one chapter, if you will. So I think it matters. Our posture before Jesus matters, and here's how it works. A posture of pride leads to blindness. Simply put, you'll do stupid things when you're prideful. And a posture of humility leads to sight, wisdom, knowledge, good decision-making. At the beginning with the deaf man, they beg Jesus. At the end, with the blind man, they beg Jesus. And then in the middle, we read about these, these Pharisees in, in verse 11. The Pharisees came out and what? Began to argue with him, demanding of Jesus a sign. Do you have awareness of how you approach Jesus? Is it with a posture of humble confidence or is it a posture of demanding what you deserve or maybe what you want? That's significant. Yeah, it's important to note that the scriptures articulate a lot about this, actually. We are to approach the throne of grace. We're, we're to approach God himself, the Father, with a humble confidence. It says that. Approach the throne of glory with confidence because we've been adopted as children. So go to the Father as you would to a perfectly loving and good Father because that Father cares. So much so that he gets angry if people use his name wrongly to lead you astray. Approach Jesus with humble confidence, but our posture and how we do that matters. Are you aware of your posture when you approach God? Our third and final takeaway this morning, following Jesus does not require perfect understanding, but it does require knowing what you don't know. Following Jesus doesn't mean you have to have every theological understanding figured out and know everything about Jesus and what's right and wrong and what's my tenure. You don't have to know any of that. Following Jesus isn't about knowledge. It doesn't require that. But it does require knowing what you don't know. And, and I want to dive into that a little bit. Back to verse 14 of, of chapter 8. The disciples had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Then Jesus commanded them, we read this, watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. They were discussing themselves that they did not have any bread. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you discussing that you do not have any bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Is your heart hardened? And I could picture Jesus in this moment being like, really? 
Are you kidding me right now? You're talking about a loaf of bread. I was not talking about bread. Like, that, that, that wasn't the issue at hand. If you remember, like, just a little bit ago, I just fed 4,000 people with just a few loaves. And before that, I fed 5,000 people with some loaves of bread. And right now, you're worried because the 12 of us or 13 of us only have one loaf. Like, really? But I wonder, how often does Jesus look at the conversations we have in a similar way? Especially something that that can happen in the church is we can get a a, a spiritual sort of arrogance and pride. And all of a sudden, your thing or my thing is the key thing that everybody in the church needs to know. Have you ever experienced that? And someone in the church goes, what is your opinion on this? And they act as if they're God and you're dumb. And everyone else that has a different perspective is just kind of an idiot. You go like, well, I'm kind of going to leave that one up to God. Like there's, there's good discussions to be had. That's healthy. But I wonder how often we have these discussions and God is going, really? Like that's what you think matters most right now, is that. That's a side note, but I think it's something for us to be aware of. So they're having this conversation that doesn't matter. Why are you discussing that you do not have any bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Is your heart hardened? And here's this pretty important question, I think. Do you have eyes and not see? And do you have ears and not hear? Do you have eyes and not see and ears and not hear? I want to pause for a second and point out, as I was kind of just reading and studying this, three things that I recognize that I don't think are a coincidence, okay? Verse 18, I think, is kind of the key to this whole passage. Do you have eyes and not see, and do you have ears and not hear? Three things I want to point out. Number one, Jesus just had an argument with the religious leaders, we call them Pharisees, who he referred to as what? Blind guides. He said, you're like blind guides. You're going to lead people. You're going to fall into a pit, and then they're going to fall into a pit right after you. He calls them blind guides. Okay, that's number one. Number two is Jesus, literally, this is, I can't say this word, like, without laughing. My, my seven-year-old daughter, this is her favorite word. You uh, say, like, she'll ask, hey, can we go get ice cream? I'll be like, no. She'll be like, dad, literally? <laughs> what does that even mean? But Jesus literally was just with a man who had ears who could not hear. And then Jesus healed him. And what Jesus was about to do is be with a man who literally had eyes but could not see. Okay? So we have Jesus referring to the religious leaders. Hang with me here for just a second because this matters. Who he calls blind guides. He's with a man who has ears but cannot hear. He's about to heal a man who has eyes but cannot see. And then in the midst of this, we come to verse 18. And he asks his disciples, do you have eyes and not see? And do you have ears and not hear? Do you not understand? What is Jesus talking about here? Remember earlier we talked about how the physical, emotional, relational, and spiritual, that's who we are as human beings. They're all tied in together. In this beautifully constructed chapter, Mark is addressing all of it. It's all tied in. I don't think it's a coincidence that in the midst of this, after all of that, Jesus asks his disciples that question. Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? 
and I was studying that on, on Monday or Tuesday this week in my office, my heart got heavy. I felt this one deeply. And I want to be really careful here because I started the morning off saying that a prophet who speaks wrongly or says God said and was wrong gets killed and I'd rather not get killed. So I'm not going to say God said. But I'm going to say I have a really, really deep conviction for us as a church. And maybe if you're just a guest with us, maybe this doesn't apply to you. But we are a family. We're a group of people following Jesus together through the broken and beautiful. And so if you're a a part of our family, and, and maybe you're not, but this is for you too, I have a deep conviction that this is for us. I think it's really easy for us to assume, no, that's not me. I have eyes and I see and I have ears and I hear what Jesus wants me to see and what he proclaims is truth. But I think we need to just take a step back for just a moment because his disciples clearly didn't understand. And just honestly ask the question, is this me? My, my hope, my goal today is not that you leave going, no, I don't have eyes to see or ears to hear. It's not my hope. My hope, though, is that you're leaving this morning willing to question whether or not you do. This is actually a a quote from Jeremiah, one of the uh, major prophets in the Old Testament. And in Jeremiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 20, is is where this quote comes from. It's a little long, but I want to read it, and I want us to just dissect it briefly. We begin with this in verse 20. God says to Jeremiah the prophet, who is going to speak for or in God's name. Declare this in the house of Jacob. Proclaim it in Judah. So Jacob and Judah means God just included all of God's family, kind of like we are now as the church. So I think this applies to us. Hear this, God says, you foolish and senseless people. When is the last time you read foolish and senseless people and you're like, oh yeah, that's me. But if we're not doing that periodically as followers of Jesus, like we're just arrogant. We're just missing it because the good news of the gospel, again, I say it all the time, is that he is God and we're not. So when is the last time foolish and senseless people like, yep, here I am. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. I think we have to stop assuming that we're beyond that. Then there's this line in verse 22, God asks, I think we should each ask it, do you not fear me? Fear doesn't mean, are you not afraid of me? Fear is this idea of respect and trust. It's when you know your parent is right and you're deciding whether or not to listen. It's not a fear as in being afraid or frightened. It's a fear of going, yeah, I just know they're going to be right. Do you not trust me? This is the Lord's declaration. Do you not tremble before me, the one who set the sand as the boundary of the sea, an enduring barrier that it cannot cross? The waves surge, but they cannot prevail. They roar, but cannot pass over it. But these people have stubborn and rebellious hearts. When's the last time you asked, do I have a stubborn and rebellious heart? Because God's people are often accused by God himself, and he's always right, of having stubborn and rebellious hearts. And if you're a follower of Jesus, well, you're God's people. So that might be us. I think it's a question worth sincerely asking. But these people have stubborn and rebellious hearts. Notice also, what is the key here? It's not behavior, it's the heart. 
They have stubborn and rebellious hearts. That's what Jesus is most concerned with. They have turned aside and have gone away. They have not said to themselves, let's fear Yahweh our God, because he's trustworthy. Look at what it says. Who gives the rain, both early and late in its season? Who guarantees to us the fixed weeks of the harvest? Meaning year after year after year after year after year after year after year, thousands of years. Every single year, we don't be like, hey, here's when the rain should come. But the faithful God that is in control of all things says, here's the rain so that you can grow food and live. He's faithful. Your guilty acts have diverted these things from you. Your sins have withheld my bounty from you. For wicked men live among my people. That's true today. Wicked people speak in the name of Jesus. They watch like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men like a cage full of birds. So their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have grown powerful and rich. They have become fat and sleek. They have also excelled in evil matters. They have not taken up the cases, such as the case of the fatherless, so they might prosper. And they have not defended the rights of the needy. Should I not punish them for these things? This is the Lord's declaration. Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? Remember we talked about God's righteous anger earlier? And then there's this, this wild sentence. A horrible, terrible thing. I love that. Like one of those pretty strong descriptors is not good enough for God in this moment. A horrible, terrible thing has taken place in the land. Here we go. This is what we started with. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule by their own authority. Now here's the key. My people love it like this. You see what happens when we're in proximity to somebody who speaks falsely in the name of Jesus? He says, my people love it like this. It's one of the uh, most devastating things about our cultural moment. It is so easy to find people that agree with you and then go online and be like, let's attack and hate everybody that doesn't. We'll feel good about ourselves. It'll be great. But we do that spiritually and theologically just as much in an, as in any, area, any other area. It's easy to find somebody to tell you what you want to hear, to tell you what you wish God said because you think you know better than him. We do this. It might be Corinthians that talks about that. These people just find a voice, a teacher, to tell their itching ears what they want to hear. My people love it like this. Verse 21, and Jesus said to them, don't you understand yet? Don't you, don't you feel like, as we picture the disciples and Jesus on this boat, and he's like, you're really talking about bread. And then he, he explains all of this to them. And he goes, don't you, don't you understand yet? And you, you almost just like want to speak out on behalf of the disciples and go, yes, yes, we finally do. And I think that's the totally wrong answer. I think the wrong answer, or the right answer that the, the disciples should have said is No. We don't. And I think one of the best things that we could communicate to Jesus, because he already knows it, is Jesus, no, I don't understand, but I trust you. We, we, we continue to, to read in verse 22. Then they came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. Again, your posture before Jesus matters and who you spend time with matters more than you recognize. 
He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village, spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him. He asked him, do you see anything? All right, stop there. He had spoke to the blind guide Pharisees. He healed a man who had ears but couldn't hear. He's about to heal a man who has eyes but couldn't see. Just before that, he had asked his disciples, do you have ears and not hear and do you have eyes and not see? What do you think they're thinking about right now? Is this just a simple healing of a guy so that he has vision? Is it just about physical healing? No way. There's no chance that's the only thing on their minds as this is happening just after he asked them that question. This is this beautiful marriage of the physical, spiritual, emotional, and relational when Jesus is saying there's healing for him, but there's something even more significant going on in this moment because Jesus asked the same question. Do you see anything? Do you have eyes and not see still? He looked up, the blind man, and said, I see people. They look to me like trees walking. That might not seem significant. This is the only time in the Gospel of Mark, and and maybe in all the Gospels, I don't remember, when Jesus heals somebody and it doesn't work. So there's kind of two options there, right? Either Jesus blew it, he messed up, which I don't think is what happened, or he's painting a picture intentionally for us. In this case, sometimes Jesus gives us sight eyes to see what we should see in phases. He looked up, the blind man did, and said, I see people, they look to me like trees walking. And again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes, he stays next to him, there's this proximity, and he saw distinctly. He was cured and could see everything clearly. What do you think the disciples were processing in that moment? They had not had eyes to see and ears to hear what they were supposed to see and hear. And Jesus is proclaiming, I can give you that vision. There's probably like three different groups, categories of us in this room right now. Maybe you're at a place where you're totally blind and you you recognize that. Or maybe you don't. Hopefully you have a friend that'll bring you before the feet of Jesus. And you have eyes, but you're not seeing the world the way it was meant to be seen, as it actually is. Maybe you're kind of in the in-between phase and you're starting to go, Jesus, I, I'm, I'm getting some things. My heart is being transformed. I'm starting to understand, but I, I surely don't see clearly. It's a good place to see or to be. To go, no, Jesus, I don't understand. I'm starting to, but I don't understand. And then we're all on this journey towards full, perfect sight. Following Jesus does not require perfect understanding but it does require knowing what we don't know. Letting God be God and following him because he knows. I'm I'm compelled with this belief that we as a church family should be characterized by a spiritual humility. It means repentance and honesty. I'm, I'm prayerful that that can be the case. I'll close with this. In 2 Corinthians 5.9, Paul says this to the church in Corinth. He says, Therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. That's a good and worthy aim. Whatever you're doing, wherever you're at, and the everyday stuff of life, make it your aim to be pleasing to Christ. But I'd almost step back and go, sometimes, maybe often, maybe more often than not, we need to go, Jesus, I don't even know how to aim Will you set the target, set the sights, dial it in so that you can show me what it means to be a husband the way you made me to be in my humanity 
or a wife or a father or a mother or a coworker or a neighbor. Jesus, will you set the target? Will you set the aim? Because I don't even know how to do that. And his answer will be yes. Following Jesus does not require perfect understanding, but it does require knowing what we don't know. May we be a people with the spiritual humility to say, Jesus, show me. Jesus, give me eyes to see and ears to hear. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are a compassionate, almighty, and all-powerful God. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would overwhelm us. Help us not to assume that we see correctly, that our vision is good, or that we've heard what you proclaim to be truth. May you work, may you heal. May you correct our blindness and deafness spiritually. May you truly lead us, because you're the only worthy leader. We trust you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow, what a great reminder. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Hey, my name is Jeremy Albright, and it's a pleasure to be a part of the restoration team. And I hope you're encouraged with today's teaching, just like I am. As I think about this next week and and living life and trying to trust Jesus in every single moment, just that we could live that prayer, that the Lord give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And that would be so amazing. Just as a reminder, we look forward to seeing you next Sunday, April 4th, Easter Sunday, for our one service, 10 a.m. on the lot. And just as Landon said, as a reminder this morning, grab a lawn chair, and uh, we look forward to worshiping our risen Savior with you next Sunday, 10 a.m. We'll see you there.